Psalm 140 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have pur purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Selah. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let the burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. You could see David was a little upset about something. And at the end, he always turns around and gives it, gives God the glory. So, uh, you know, we all have a right to be, have, uh, you know, righteous indignation in us right now with what's going on in the nation. But in the end, God is sovereign. And let's just keep remembering that. We will walk in your presence someday, Lord. We're walking in it right now. Just so you know, we are in the presence of the Lord. But sometimes it's just a little painful in the process. Someday there won't be any pain at all. Our uh, sermon text today is Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. Eight short verses. It's entitled, The Brazen Altar. Verse 1, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. and You shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as what it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. Okay, you've heard our eight verses today, which deal with the uh, brazen altar, which is also known as the altar of burnt offering. Having heard them, are you seeing pictures of Christ and his work in them? When the Israelites came into the courtyard of the tabernacle, this would be the very first thing that they saw. It was situated in this way to teach them a lesson. They were unable to come near to God without first sacrificing to atone for their sins. In other words, bloodshedding is required for access to God, and without it, there is no access. If nothing else, this should alert us to our need for a sacrifice before approaching God or being accepted by him. And yet, very few people and cultures today offer any type of a sacrifice to him. And those that do it are doing it wrong. If this is so, then how can we expect that God will hear our prayers and allow us restored access to him? The placement of the altar is given for a reason. Can we just ignore it? 
The answer is that we do have a sacrifice, and it is a suitable one indeed. If we have come to the foot of Calvary and placed our sins there, then we have done exactly what this ancient altar only pictured. We have had our sins removed in order to be acceptable to God once again. In Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 5, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapters 1 through chapter 5, the prophet proclaims woe on the people nine times. Woe to you for this and woe to you for that. However, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet had a vision of the Lord in divine splendor. In his anguish at his own sin, in comparison to God's glory, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He understood then and there that he was doomed because of his fallen state. The sins of the others had been forgotten, and all he could do was see his own deplorable condition. But then something happened, which forever changed his view on salvation. That's our text verse for today. It's from Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. (coughs) Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. As we will see today, the altar of sacrifice is Christ. The sacrifice which was consumed on the coals of the altar merely portrays his work for the poor sinners of the world. The burning coal reflects the holiness of God, which consumes all that offends him. An exchange was made in Christ to take away our offense. It is this marvelous piece of furniture made of wood and brass, which depicts him. Everything about it will reveal some aspect of his work for us. And how much I've missed in preparing this sermon, I can only guess. But what I have gleaned, I now present to you. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is grace, strength, and judgment. It's verses one through three. First one, you shall make an altar. The instructions for the altar of sacrifice are now given. This is a specific altar which is specific for the tabernacle. Thus, there is an article in front of altar. It is ha-mizbeach, or the altar. Unfortunately, many translations don't highlight this. Like the description of the tabernacle itself, the things inside the tabernacle were detailed first. Only then were the hangings and the structure around that furniture then noted. The same is true here with the details of the altar coming before the details of the court which surrounds it. The Mizbeach comes from the word Zabach, which means to slaughter for sacrifice. This type of altar was first seen in Genesis 8, verse 20, when Noah built an altar to the Lord after the flood. Verse 1 continues, of acacia wood. Again, acacia wood is selected for this altar, and so I will again remind you of its properties. It is a very slow-growing tree that would be readily available in the area of the Sinai. Its heartwood is dark reddish-brown, and it's beautiful when sanded and polished. It is like cypress here in Florida, which is resistant to decay because it deposits in its heartwood waste substances, which turn into preservatives. This renders it unpalatable to insects. It is also dense, and it's difficult to be penetrated by water and other decaying agents. Thus, it is considered an incorruptible wood. The acacia wood pictures the incorruptible nature of Christ's humanity. As it is an altar for sacrifice, it will picture Christ in a way that any of us will be able to grasp. Verse 1 continues, five cubits long and five cubits wide. 
The dimensions are specific, and they have not been seen in any of the other furniture yet constructed. The number five needs to be again explained. Bullinger notes that five is four plus one. We have hitherto had the three persons of the Godhead and their manifestation in creation. That's three and then four. Now we have a further revelation of a people called out from mankind, redeemed and saved, to walk with God from earth to heaven. Hence, redemption follows creation inasmuch as in consequence of the fall of man came under the curse and it was made subject to vanity. Therefore, man and creation must be redeemed. Thus we have Father, Son, Spirit, creation, redemption. These are the five great mysteries, and five is therefore the number of grace. The altar of sacrifice is then a point of grace for the people of Israel. It further then points to the grace of God in Christ. This altar of sacrifice is a point of grace in the process and pictures of redemption. The width and the length are both five cubits, thus it is grace multiplied. In our modern measurements, this altar would have been almost three yards wide. It's not a teeny little altar, but one which is big enough for the animals which would be sacrificed and burnt on it. Verse 1 continues, the altar shall be square. Surprisingly, the idea of something square has never been mentioned in scripture until now. It is the word rabah, and it comes from the word arobah, which means four. As the sides are equal distance and there are four sides, then it is rabah or square. Verse 1 continues, and its height shall be three cubits. Rather than being another multiple of five, the height is but three cubits. The number three in scripture identifies that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire. The altar is a total of 75 square cubits, and the idea is that the sacrifice to be made here is that of substantial or complete grace. This is where the atonement sacrifices and other sacrifices for the people will be made. Scholars, both ancient and modern, are perplexed about the altar because it does not square up with the instruction for the earthen altar, which was detailed in Exodus chapter 20. However, as we discovered then, those altars were used wherever the people were for slaughtering their animals. They could be in a town, they could be in a country. This is an entirely different altar unique to the tabernacle and which is used in connection with the rites of the tabernacle service. It serves an entirely different purpose than the earthen altars did. In the tabernacle, God would dwell among his people, manifesting himself to them and speaking to them through the high priest. As he so dwelt among them, then they were to honor him with their devotions. But this wasn't in the tabernacle itself. It was within the surrounding courts. It was to this point that they would come, bring their sacrifices, and have their gifts sanctified to the Lord. Upon entering the courts, this was the first piece of furniture to be encountered. In this was a lesson for the people that they could not approach God except through a sacrifice. This altar will generally be known as the altar of burnt offering. It stands in the open air of the court so that the smoke of the sacrifices would then rise and scatter. In this manner, they would be considered as an aromatic offering to God and as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Verse 2, you shall make its horns on its four corners. This altar and others, which will be noted later, were to have horns constructed on the four corners. The karen, or horn, has only been seen so far one time in the Bible in Genesis 22, verse 13, where Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. 
This word karen comes from the verb karan, which means to send out rays or to shine. The idea is that rays shine out and they appear like horns. Likewise, horns protrude out like rays of light. In the Bible, the horn is a picture of physical strength and power. And so, subsequently, horns were put on the altars to focus the symbolic presence and power of God. The horns going out in all four directions are symbolic of the power of God going out to all four corners of the earth. The tabernacle was situated facing east and west, like this, and the altar would be squared up with that. Therefore, one horn would be pointed northeast, one would be northwest, one would be southwest, and one would be southeast. Thus, the omnipotence of the Lord is seen in these horns. Before moving on, one more new word is brought into scripture here. It is the word pina, which means an angle. And so the word is also figuratively used to indicate a chief, like the chief of a uh, clan, a bulwark, a stay, or even a tower. It is something which provides, as it were, stability. Verse 2 continues, its horns shall be of one piece with it. These horns were to come up out from the altar. They were not to be removable, but as it were, just one piece protruding out, just as a horn would protrude out of an animal itself. These horns would serve one purpose of binding the sacrificial animal to them so that they wouldn't thrash about as they were being sacrificed. This is seen in the 118th Psalm. It says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. If you can see a picture of Christ there, the horns, he's, the sacrifice is being bound to the horns of the altar and there at the altar of God, the grace of Christ's sacrifice came into its focus in its most perfect sense. What is certain also is that the blood of the sin offering was smeared on these horns. This is seen several times, such as in Leviticus 4. Here's what it says. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour its blood out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. This blood of the sacrificial animal was smeared on them to prove the death of the animal and to petition the all-powerful God to show mercy through the substitutionary sacrifice, one life being traded for the sins of another. These would be for both original sin and the unwitting sins of the people which were committed in ignorance. Because of this, these horns on this altar were considered a place for requesting mercy. Two examples of exactly this are found in the book of 1 Kings. The first is concerning Solomon's brother, who had committed an offense in trying to illegally assume the kingship from his father. Here's what it says about him. Now, Adoniah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was Solomon, it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adoniah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. He's asking for mercy at the place of mercy. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. The second example is found in King David's general, his top general, Joab. Here's what it says for 1 Kings 2. Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. 
So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and he took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought word, back word, to uh, the king, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. Then the king said to him, Do as he said, strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his servants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. In the first instance, mercy was granted because Adonia's sin was considered at that time unwitting. However, Joab had continued in his sin and was unrepentant in his murders. Therefore, mercy was granted to the former, and none was to be found in the latter. Verse 2 continues, And you shall overlay it with bronze. Like the other furniture thus far, this wood was to be overlaid, but instead of gold, bronze was to be used. As we've noted already, bronze symbolizes judgment. This judgment can be positive or it can be negative. If positive, it results in purification and justification. If negative, it results in punishment, maybe even death. However, there is the truth that in order for there to be positive judgment for a sinful person, then there must be death of an innocent in his place. Therefore, the positive judgment still carries with it a negative aspect. Think of Jesus. The overlaying of the altar is said by many scholars to be done in order to keep the wood below it from burning or to make it light enough to carry. But neither of these ideas is correct. If the Lord was concerned about its structure being compromised, he would have just had the thing made out of solid bronze. And if he was concerned about his weight, he could have instructed it to be made in several pieces, like portions of the tabernacle itself are. Rather, he is using these materials to make a picture of Christ in his work for us. Each detail is given for a very specific reason. An altar of sacrifice, so you shall make. It will be of wood, covered in bronze, it shall be. To it your sacrifices and offerings you shall take, and they shall be brought there and presented to me. So shall you make the altar as I instruct you, and so it shall be according to the words I say. Each detail you shall make, thus you shall do, here on the mountain I will show you the way. An altar of sacrifice so I shall make, he will be a man of Adam's seed. To him shall you all of your faith take, for in him there is forgiveness for every misdeed. Our second thought today is precise details. It's verses 3 through 8. Verse 3, also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes. Two words of note here are sear or pans and dashen or to receive its ashes. The word sear has only been used once so far when the people complained about not having pots full of meat that they had left behind in Egypt. The word sear means both pot and thorn. The idea is that a pot is used to boil something up and a thorn is something that rapidly springs up. So you can see the connection between those words. In this instance, the seer or pans are used to receive the ashes. 
However, dashen, or to receive its ashes, is a rare verb, which means to be fat or to grow fat. It doesn't seem to fit unless we see that this comes from the word desen, which means ashes, but specifically ashes from fat. Therefore, it is the residue from the animal fat which is collected by these pans. This would literally be rendered to cleanse it from fat. Verse 3 continues, And its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. Other than the fire pans, none of these have been seen yet in Scripture. The yah, or shovel, comes from the word yah, or away. One gets the idea directly. The yah is used to yah something away from where it is at. In this case, the shovels would be used for shoveling out the ashes from the altar. The mizrak, or basins, comes from the word zarak, which means to scatter. These bowls would be used for receiving and then dispensing of the blood. The mazleg, or fork, indicates a flesh hook. These would be large bronze instruments for handling the flesh of the sacrificial animals and arranging their parts on the altar. From 1 Samuel 2, verse 13, we see that they were three-pronged forks. And finally, the machtah, or fire pan, were first seen back in Exodus 25, verse 38, concerning the snuff dishes of the menorah. This word comes from chatah, which means to take away. Thus, they would be the implements used for the ashes of the sacrifice that needed to be removed from time to time. Each thing has a specific purpose in the sacrificial process. Verse 3 continues, You shall make all its utensils of bronze. Like everything associated with this altar, these implements were to be made of bronze. Thus, all of what occurs here is given to symbolize judgment. In the case of the altar, it is for judgment on sin in order to restore a propitious relationship between man and God. Verse 4, you shall make a grate for it. The grate, or makbur, is introduced here. It's a rare word found only six times, all in Exodus and all referring to this item here. It means a grating, as can be deduced from the word, because it comes from the word kabir, which means a quilt or something that is plated or intertwined. That comes from another word which gives the idea of abundance. Verse 4 continues, a network of bronze. The grating is further described using the term ma'ase reshet, a working of net. This new word, reshet, means just that, a net as is used for catching something. Verse 4 continues, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. Like the other furniture so far described, this one also has rings which are attached to it. In this case, they are attached directly to the grating in the four corners of the altar. Verse 5, you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath. Very complicated words in Hebrew here. I want you to know that. And what I'm going to talk about may have you confused. Don't worry. This is very confusing. The word translated here as rim is karkov. It's used only twice, and both times it is used for this same altar. It is a word which is spoken to Moses as if he immediately understood what it was, but there is no other word for us to adequately connect it to. Etymologically, it means a ledge or a compass, and so it is generally believed to be a rim which went around the entire top of the altar. But there is no reason to assume that it couldn't go all the way around the bottom of the altar as a rim for holding the boards together. Further, we read this in Leviticus chapter 9. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. After making his sacrifices, Aaron came down from where he was making them. 
And so it appears that this Kharkov is a framework around the bottom upon which one could step. If this is so, it may help us to see why it is instructed that the network should be under the rim of the altar beneath. Verse 5 continues, that the network may be midway up the altar. The grading is to be midway up the altar. With all of this information now in place, it is completely unknown what this grading was for or what it looked like or even where it was. Some say it is the hearth of the altar, and that's what I would agree with personally. In other words, it is the grate for the fire or where the parts of the sacrificial animals were burnt, just as we would see a grating in a modern barbecue grill. Okay, If so, this is on the inside and it's one half ways up. This would allow for the fire to breathe. Others describe this as a grating that is affixed to the outside of the altar, going from the bottom to the middle. Others say it's a network on the outside going from the middle to the top, just below the rim. If you do an image search on Google on this particular altar, you're going to see every possible variation. What seems most likely to me is that this network is an entirely separate piece from the altar. It is a meshwork upon which the wood of the altar is actually placed, thus forming a whole unit. The rings then are on the outside, having gone under the ledge and up the side. Thus, by carrying the bronze net at its rings, the entire altar can be carried. If this is so, then in order to clean the residue which fell through the net, the entire altar would simply need to be picked up, everything shoveled out, and then it's set back down in its place. It would be a very simple job to perform. In this, the grate is the hearth, and it would also support the carrying of the ark. Verse 6, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood. Like all of the other furniture within the tabernacle, this piece is also to be carried on poles. And like the others, the poles are of shittim, or acacia wood. They carry the same connotation as the other times that they're mentioned, but there is a difference. Verse 6 continues, and overlay them with bronze. The metal for the altar and the rings is the same as the metal for the covering of the poles. Everything about this altar, including its poles, signifies judgment. Verse 7, the poles shall be put into the rings. Depending on how one perceives the design of the altar and of the grating, these may be the same rings described in verse 4 or different rings. If the grating is on the inside, but not as I suggest, then they are either different rings, of which the instructions say nothing, or they are connected through holes in the wall of the altar, again, of which the instructions say nothing. If the gratings are outside, then they would be the same rings. However, there is no explanation as to how the sacrifices were burned, because there would still need to be gratings for the wood and offerings. But the details for these gratings would have been surprisingly left out. This is unlikely. No matter what, the poles are intended for rings. I am of the opinion that they are the same rings mentioned in verse 4, and which are on the grating which is inside the altar and which goes under the altar and up the side at the corners to accommodate the poles. If this is so, then it explains the next words. Verse 7 continues, And the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. The altar, the grating, the rings, and the poles become one unit to be carried. The altar was easily transported and light enough for it to be done so by men as they walked. Verse 8, You shall make it hollow with boards. The word hollow, or navav, is brought in here. It is seen just four times. It comes from a root, which means to pierce. Therefore, you get the idea of something that is hollow. It is also used one time in the book of Job to mean an idiot. 
such as the man with a hollow head. His thinking is vain, and there's nothing substantial about him or his character. The boards here are not the same word used to describe the boards of the tabernacle. These are known as luchot. It is the same word used to describe the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were engraved. These then would be slabs, and they imply strength and stability and solidity. As the entire altar was to be hollow, it supports the idea of it being supported from below and yet carried on rings from its midpoint. The boards would be joined together and then overlaid with bronze. But something of this size would need additional framework to keep it together unless it was supported from below while being carried. If it had additional framework, it would then become very heavy to carry. Verse 8 finishes our uh, verse today. As it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. This is now the third time that Moses has been told that he is to complete the work according to the pattern that he has shown on the mountain. Nothing is being left to chance, and every detail is to be precisely completed. Therefore, none of this is according to human wisdom or design. Instead, it is divinely inspired. This repetition implies that there are other details which are not recorded, but of which Moses was aware of. Because of this, everything that is recorded is given for our benefit and to understand what is on the mind of God. And as these words are given on Mount Sinai, which means the bush of the thorn, we can know that the work of Jesus culminating in his cross and his crown of thorns is being described for us in one way or another. Understanding this, let's evaluate the verses in hopes of finding out what God wants us to see. Where can I go to be freed from my sin? What place can I go where I can stand without guilt? Without atonement, for sure, I am done in. But for this reason, I hear that Christ's blood was spilt. He went to the cross to die for sin. How could it be? There on Calvary, an exchange was made. He died in my place. Yes, he died even for me. What a marvelous God. What an unbalanced trade. All of my wrongs for his righteousness. Through him, I am freed from all of my guilt. Forever to my God, my soul will praise and bless for the day when on Calvary, Christ's blood was built. Our third thought today is wonderful pictures. First and foremost, this altar is a type of Christ. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews directly equates Christ with the altar, meaning the altar of sacrifice. And more specifically, it refers to the sacrifice upon the altar. Here's what it says in Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Speaking of Jesus. The wood has already been noted as picturing Christ's human nature. The word in Hebrew for the altar describes a place in which a slaughter for a sacrifice is made. This is what occurred in the giving of Christ for us. He is that place of sacrifice in the grand plan of God's redemption of man. The dimensions seen were those of grace multiplied five times five. This is actually referred to twice by Peter in the New Testament. In his letters, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is what is received through the sacrificial offering of Christ. We received his grace and we received his peace through the giving of his life. Christ, the altar of sacrifice, is God's point of grace in the process of redemption. The co-equal measurement of all four sides points to the redemption of creation, four being the number of that which is created. Paul speaks in detail concerning the redemption of all of creation in Romans chapter 8. This is what is wrought through the work of Christ's sacrifice. The three cubits in height 
point to the complete sufficiency of what Christ will do in his sacrifice. Nothing is wanting. Instead, all that is necessary to complete the forgiveness of sins is entirely realized in him. As it can be said, Christ, the true altar, had to be capable of dying while at the same time being one upon whom death had no claim. The horns of the altar denote the power of God in Christ, which is realized throughout the four corners of the earth. His sacrifice is sufficient to redeem any and all people who come to him for forgiveness of their sins. His omnipresence and his omnipotence are thus symbolized in these four horns. That the horns are in the corner and not on the sides indicates stability and permanence. There is assurance in the sacrifice which is found in Christ. That the horns are of one piece with the altar shows that though Christ is human, his power is unlimited. It thus implies his deity. The power of God is tied into the man, Jesus. The bronze of the altar points to judgment. As Christ is the altar, then it points to the judgment of sin in Christ. Paul explains this exactingly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with these words. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The bronze of the judgment covering the burnable wood shows that Christ's humanity could not have borne all of God's wrath unless it was supported and covered by God's divine power. Again, it is a hint at the divine human nature of Christ. He is fully human and capable of dying, and yet fully God and thus able to endure the judgment of the cross. Wood and bronze, man, yet God. The implements which are associated with the altar all point to the sufficiency of Christ's work. Everything that is necessary to accomplish the forgiveness of sins and to completely remove every vestige of our fallen lives is pictured in these various items. The blood, the fat, in fact the entire sacrifice is completely cleansed through the use of these bronze implements. Through Christ, the sacrifice is complete in every detail and the judgment on sin is absolute. Nothing of our former selves is left. Instead, it is all carried away through the judgment he suffered on our behalf. These implements and what they signify reflect the words of Christ on his cross. It is finished. The sacrifice is complete and the forgiveness is provided. The death of the substitute has realized that for which it was intended. The grating, which is a network of bronze, pictures the ability of Christ to completely capture and remove the sins of his people. The word for net that is found here is used 22 times in the Old Testament, and it is generally in a negative sense of capturing something. It comes from a root which means to possess. The net then pictures the capturing of sin through the sacrifice of Christ. From there it is burnt up and entirely removed. As this grating is at the midpoint within the altar, it thus signifies the inward sufferings of Christ as he received God's judgment for our sins. For those who understand what I just said, it is a terrible reminder of what he endured for us. And every time we sin, we should remember that Christ was completely consumed on the cross of Calvary for things that we have done. Surprisingly, it is to this grating that the rings are attached. 
the rings carry the same connotation as they previously did with the other furniture. They picture the four Gospels which depict the sacrificial work of Christ. They are what tie us to the true altar of sacrifice, which is Christ. They are permanently tied into his work, which is sufficient to redeem all of creation. Thus again, the number four, as in four rings, is given. The details are specific because the details point to Christ. That the grating and network is explicitly said to be under the rim of the altar shows that the judgment for our sins is under Christ, who is the altar. The sin is removed in him, and it forever remains so. It is completely taken away. The poles, or bod, of the altar carry the same meaning as they did before concerning the Ark of the Covenant. The number two in the Bible indicates that there is a difference in things. They contrast, and yet they confirm. There is male, and there is female. They contrast, and yet they confirm the scope of humanity. There are two poles which support the one altar. The altar pictures Christ, and thus the poles represent the two testaments which present the work of Christ. They are what makes Christ mobile to the world, as their word carries the work of his sacrifice. Each contrasts the law and grace, but each support the whole and confirm the message of Christ. Isaiah speaks of his sacrifice to come. Hebrews explains the sacrifice which came. These two testaments are bound by the four Gospels, all of which reveal the marvelous work that he fulfilled. Finally, in the last verse concerning the altar, it's very specific. You shall make it hollow with boards. The word for boards is unusual in that it almost always refers to the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It indicates a slab, and thus it indicates and implies solidity. This pictures Christ's unwavering and steady work for his people, steadfastly and resolutely accomplishing the fulfilling of the Ten Commandments for us, even though it meant that he would die in the process of doing it. Through this solid and unwavering determination, he brought man's sins into judgment once for all time. And finally, that the altar is explicitly said to be hollow is not without significance. This pictures Christ in his humanity emptying himself in order to be our atoning sacrifice for sins. This is explicitly referred to by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As you can see, every detail is selected to give us hints into the person and the work of Christ who is coming. Without his sacrifice, we would be utterly cut off from God. This is what the Bible teaches. We cannot approach him without first coming to him through a sacrifice. Even the Old Testament shows us this numerous times and in numerous ways. In the tabernacle, the veil shows of our separation from God because of sin. In the altar, we see that death is the consequence of sin. However, in the altar, we also see that which speaks of sin forgiven. Arthur Pink gives his comments on this particular passage. Nature knows nothing of this. Break her laws and you must suffer the consequences. Repent, but she knows no mercy and shows no pity. Science is equally powerless. It endeavors to relieve the effects entailed, but has no remedy for the disease itself. Divine revelation alone makes known an adequate provision, the cross of Christ. 
There, the uncompromising judgment of God dealt with sin, not by punishing the sinner, but by smiting the sinner's substitute. Before we finish, I'll give you one example from the time of King Solomon. He had assumed the kingship of Israel, and he sought the Lord. The Ark of the Testimony, where the Lord said that he would meet with Moses, was already down in Jerusalem, but Solomon didn't go there to seek the Lord. Instead, he went all the way to Gibeon, where the tabernacle was. It was there that the bronze altar, which was being described right in these verses, still was. Solomon understood that to seek the Lord, he had to first go through a sacrifice. Here is that account. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom. And the Lord, his God, was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and hundreds, and to the judges, and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly went with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought the ark of God from Kiriathion to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon in the assembly sought him there. And Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? It is stories like these that show us that we must, we must come to God, not directly, but through a sacrifice. As Christ is the end of the law, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is ended. Therefore, it is only through Christ whom these ancient things picture that we can approach God. Without him, God will neither hear nor respond. But through Christ, we have full and complete access to the throne of grace. Let us take this to heart. If you have never come to God through the offering which he made, the offering of his son, then your prayers will not be heard. Your sin has caused a wall between you and him which must be first broken down. Let me tell you how to get that fixed so that you can have full and complete access to God through Christ the Lord. The Bible says, as I've already said in this sermon a million times, we have sin in us. That's taken as an axiom in the Bible from the very first pages. And that sin has caused a separation between us and God. There's nothing we can do about it, and God will not listen to us. So much for these sacrifices which are coming in Jerusalem in the near future. When they build a temple and they start sacrificing, it means nothing. It's God has allowed it. He has said in his word that it's going to happen, but it is intended as a purpose to bring the people of Israel back to him when they finally realize these sacrifices didn't do anything. God is not listening. We need something else, and they're going to realize that they need Jesus. The entire Bible only points to the coming Christ, and he fulfilled all of these types and shadows. This altar where that innocent little animal died, and think of it now. Think of it. These animals, you bring them in and you love your pets at home. You love to go to the zoo and see these cute animals. They were just as cute as what we have at home, right? And they would take those animals and they'd tie them to the horns of the altar and they'd cut its neck and out would come its blood. And the thing would quiver and die right there. My sin being transferred to that poor innocent animal only pictured what Christ did. We feel bad for that animal. Do we feel bad about our sins that Christ had to die for? Do we mourn over them? Do we think, I don't want to disgrace my Lord by something I do in this life. Instead, I want to be honorable and I want to say no more of the sin in my life because the wages of sin is death and he had to die in my place. And if you don't accept that, then your death is eternal. 
you'll be cast into the lake of fire, eternally apart from God. But Christ came to take that penalty away and to allow you to walk once again in a garden of delight. As I said earlier, what an unbalanced trade. What a God that would do this for us. I was thinking about the Jehovah's Witnesses this past week and how they say that Christ is a created being. And I thought, what a pathetic thing that is. Oh, I'm going to make something to die for your sins. Where's the love in that? I'm just going to make something to die in your place. He did that with these animals. Isn't that sufficient? No. He himself, the creator of everything that we know, the majestic cosmos that we look out, he came down and he dwelled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He took that punishment. This altar, that burning, that sweet fragrance to God was Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And why? Because the sweet fragrance pictures are being reconciled to him. And he wants that so badly that the death of his own son is a sweet-smelling offering to him. That's how much he loves us. And people go out and they malign Christianity. They malign the one that would do this for us. I don't understand it. But if you're listening today and you understand what Christ did in this altar, the picture of it, every one of us ought to just go home and just mourn over what we've done wrong and what we continue to do wrong. Don't let me bring disgrace upon your name, O Christ. Call on Jesus. Be reconciled to him through the shed blood of the perfect lamb without spot or blemish and you will be forgiven forever under the altar, as it says. It's done at the foot of the cross of Calvary. Our closing verse today comes from Ephesians chapter 5. It's verses 1 and 2. Talking about that sin. Talking about what we ought to be living like. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You read those words and they just kind of pass by your eye and in one ear and out the other. But if you think of what they mean, if you think about what they mean, like I say, we can all appreciate going home and looking at a little puppy and saying, I love my little puppy. How infinitely insignificant is that animal compared to what Jesus Christ did and he offered himself for us. Unbelievable. I love our six puppies. I mean, somebody came in and tried to take them away from me. They'd have a real fight. How much more should I be willing to defend Jesus Christ and be willing to speak out for him? Not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only path for those poor sinners to come and know God again. Grab some tracks on the way out. Paul spends all that time and money and effort putting those up. Take them and pass them out, please. Next week is Exodus 27. It's verses 9 through 21. And it's a lot of detail to tackle. It's entitled The Court of the Tabernacle. That'll be our 75th Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him. And you'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is called Christ Our Altar. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, as is understood, and its height shall be three cubits, so I decide. You shall make its horns on its four corners, its horns shall be of one piece with it. Then you shall overlay it with bronze, so shall you do, so I to you submit. Also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, and its shovels and its basins and its forks, and its fire pans too. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze, such as I now instruct to you. 
You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, so shall it be. And on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, as instructed by me. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, so you shall do. That the network may be midway up the altar, this is the design that I am instructing you. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, so shall it be, so it is understood. The poles shall be in the rings. The poles shall on the two sides be of the altar to bear it. Stick closely to these instructions from me. You shall make it hollow with boards as it was to you on the mountain shown. So shall they make it according to my words. To them, these instructions shall be made known. In the altar, God's wisdom in Christ is revealed. Each detail selected to show us of Jesus. And through his offering, a joyous destiny is sealed. Surely God in Christ has done marvelous things for us. And so we praise you, O King of the ages. Our hearts are filled with your beauty and your glory. Marvelous things you have revealed in the Bible's pages. Marvelous things in this wonderful redemption story. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, I just I read these verses a million times and until I really looked into them, I never realized the perfection of your word in the altar which is Christ our Lord and what he did for us. And I got to tell you, I certainly moan over my sins, the thoughts in my head, the sins of omission, the sins of commission, how they necessitated exactly what we're seeing here, an offering to take away what I have done. And I thank you that it is done now. It is under the altar. It is complete and my sins are forever forgiven. I know that I'm going to screw up. I know people in my own life, very near and dear to me who have screwed up recently and I know that right now they're considering their actions and I know that they're wondering what life has ahead for them but we can pull ourselves back up we can look at the cross we can fix our eyes on Jesus and we can say I'm not going to let this be the worst of me but the finest I'm going to overcome this through the shed blood of Christ help each one of us to have that strong determination and Lord also there are so many people that need prayer right now so many afflictions in this church, outside of this church, friends, family, people that attend here online, people that are just friends that we hear from from time to time that email and say, can you pray about this? And you know every one of them, and we'd have a list that would go on for an hour if we were to name them today. What a bad week it's been. But we certainly lift them all up to you, and we also lift up to you our hearts and our praises for responding in the marvelous way that you always do. And Lord, we commit this uh, table to you and uh, we just thank you for it, the fact that we can commune with you through the bread and the water or the wine. And we thank you for it and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We get this uh, instructions here for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu alecha olam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu olam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I left out a, a sentence from the uh, from the Bible there, but uh, I say it every week. And if you're unsure, go back and read one Corinthians eleven. And uh, I may not have, I may have said it correctly, but I, my brain kind of stopped there, and I may have forgot the sentence. So I apologize. But please come forward. Oh, let me let me give it to these folks first. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now before I close this in prayer, that pink cane reminds me, I've got, if anybody ever needs canes or if anybody wants canes, i got like a billion of them hanging at the mall because people would throw them away if they get a little scratch at one of the drugstore or some other place. And some of them are really expensive canes, but they can't sell them, so they just toss them. And I refuse to let that stuff go out to the dump. So I got, you need a cane? No, but I discovered this week, Mm-hmm. They take medical equipment and give it to people who okay. need medical equipment. Where is that? I, 17th and Lockwood Ridge. Well, that's downtown. Okay, well, we'll get some down there. I mean, I got all these canes and, you know, I whatever. But if anybody here wants one, let me know before I take them downtown. 
Anyway, here we go. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, canes which support us, our third <laughs> leg, and uh, that we can get around until our hips get fixed, and we would uh, pray that that would be the case with Linda very soon. She wouldn't be in any pain anymore. And, uh, our other friend, who I won't name because she's shy about it, but uh, she also has got the same bad problem, and that needs uh, fixing. We would pray about that. And for all the other afflictions in the week ahead, we commit them to you, having partaken in the Lord's Supper and uh, hoping in anticipation of healing. And if, should you decide that uh, our, the healing is only spiritual and that our physical bodies will continue to degrade, just give us enough strength to praise you. If you just allow us that, it will all be well with us. And so we thank you for that. And we love you and we do praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.